0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series, A Well-Researched Christmas Today, so let's turn our Bibles to Luke chapter 2, verses 8 to 38, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, What Child is This?
1: After the birth of Jesus, Luke alone records his first, most amazing visitors. I'm reading Luke 2, verses 8 to 20. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord and this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And the angels went away from them to heaven, and the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us." And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. You know, for the most part, the world simply carried on as it always did when Jesus was born. Caesar Augustus was busy compiling a major census of his empire and planning to implement the new tax. Quirinius, governor of Syria, was busy working out the details on a local level, especially as it related to the Jews. Herod the Great, ruler of the Jews, was busy ingratiating himself with Rome and carrying out his completion project of the temple and making it larger than the one that had been built by Solomon all the while wiping out all competition to his rule. And, and the Sadducees were busy accommodating Rome and trying to keep the peace. And meanwhile, they were becoming increasingly richer. And, and the Pharisees were busy doing Bible study and enforcing the tradition of the elders and making sure that hundreds of rules were understood and properly kept. And lots of common people were raising families and earning a living and just getting on with life. Yeah, Christ was born in Bethlehem, but very few even had the slightest hint that something extraordinary had just happened. They didn't because there were no press releases or major announcements and no fanfare, nothing that would indicate that something significant had happened. You see, when the Emperor Augustus had a a birthday, an announcement went out throughout the entire empire carrying the words, good news of great joy. But who could respond to the birth of Christ, good news of great joy, if they just didn't know? I mean, we might wonder why God, who could have sent his angels to the whole world, chose rather to very discreetly announce the birth of Jesus to so few. I'm going to get back to that, but for now, let's just notice who got the memo and to whom the announcement was made. We find that the very first people to receive the news was a group of shepherds keeping sheep outside on the Judean hills. It was night, probably a normal night, and suddenly the heavens were ablaze with light and an angel of the Lord appeared to them. And they were understandably terrified, but the angel tells them not to be afraid. He had good news of great joy, and that's the very wording that one might get on Caesar's birthday. Now, I think that was deliberate. Indeed, I think Luke recorded those words in order to assure that readers who read the book of Luke might immediately compare the wording that the angels gave to the shepherds to the wording that would come from the palace of Rome. The contrast between Rome's imperial splendor and the poverty and obscurity of a barn slash cave outside of Bethlehem, well, that couldn't have been greater. But the contrast between Caesar Augustus and Jesus really couldn't have been greater either. You know, Augustus, the man who thought of himself as the Prince of Peace, who carved out a temporal empire by force, and Jesus, who carved out a much greater empire and an eternal one at that. No matter how one conceives it, the contrast between the two is stark and glaringly different. The birth of Jesus and the birthday of Augustus, oh my. But this wording, good news of great joy, came not from Rome, but it came from heaven, not from Caesar, but from God. The word good news of great joy no doubt signaled the importance of the announcement. These shepherds were the very first human beings beside Mary and Joseph to hear of the birth of Jesus. And before we go on, let's ask the question, why of all people in the world did God command that an angel followed by more angels you know, would make their appearance to a group of shepherds. I mean, why not others, more important and more worthy? I mean, why not priests or kings? And why not the citizens of Nazareth or Bethlehem or even Jerusalem? Or if you want to be humble, why not show up at Zechariah and Elizabeth's house? I mean, I hope you see shepherds. Well, since God never acts impulsively, but only in accordance with his eternal purposes, it makes one wonder why he chose shepherds. You know, I'm afraid that shepherds have received a very bad rap by many Bible teachers. They're often described as despised by the wider Jewish culture. I've read some books that make it out that most people in Israel thought of them as thieves. You know, some suggest they were ritually unclean, and so they were banished from Jewish society. You know, Daryl Bach, who has written perhaps the most definitive commentary on Luke, says that we get the information that shepherds were despised from rabbinic literature that comes from the fifth century. But there was no hint that he knows of in any literature at the time of Christ that thought of shepherds in a negative way. You know, Bach thinks that the choice of the shepherds does not signal that God chose the despised members of the society to show up at Christ's birth. You know, it's a nice thought. God's coming to known sinners first, but Bach says it's simply not true. After all, if that is the idea, I mean, why not show up at at prostitutes and tax collectors and, and so forth? See, in fact, in the Bible, shepherds are held in high regard. Abraham, Moses, David, they're all shepherds. And what's more, when David's leadership style is summarized in the Bible, Psalm 78 verse 72 says of David, with upright heart, he shepherded Israel and guided them with his skillful hand. You know, call David a shepherd, that's a compliment, not a slight. And one of the most famous passages in the entire Bible, Psalm 23, David even said that the Lord was his shepherd. There are countless images in the Old Testament in which shepherds are taken as the symbol for spiritual leadership. In fact, we have inherited this as Christians. You know, I had a title for many years, pastor, it simply meant shepherd. But consider how the title shepherd would relate to Jesus. 1 Peter 5.14 calls Jesus the great shepherd of the sheep. And Jesus would refer to himself with the very same words. In John 10 verse 11, one of the seven great I am statements found in the book of John, John would record Jesus' as teaching, I am the good shepherd. And as a good shepherd, he said, he was not like a hireling who would run away when the wolf approaches. Instead, he said, he would lay down his life for the sheep. You see, if a shepherd were a bad image, Jesus would not have used this as a way of describing himself. But this is the image he frequently chose. In Luke 15, verse four, Jesus compares himself to a shepherd who when a a single one of his sheep were lost, he would leave the 99 safe in the fold and go out and find and claim that one lost sheep. And in Matthew 25, verse 32, Jesus would describe the events at the end of the world when, when he would judge the whole earth He would come as a great shepherd, he said, separating the sheep from the goats. He would, like any good shepherd would, know which sheep were his own and which did not belong to him. See, I don't think that shepherds were chosen because they were considered as thieves and outcasts. So why did God choose shepherds to be the very first to hear the announcement of the birth of Jesus? Well, I think God chose shepherds to come to the birth of the greatest shepherd of all times. God chose shepherds to highlight that this child in the manger was destined to be the great shepherd of his people, the great shepherd of the flock. You know, some have suggested that since these shepherds were in the field outside of Bethlehem, that, that Bethlehem, which is, of course, so close to Jerusalem, it's only, you know, perhaps five kilometers away, these shepherds may also have been raising sheep that would have been used in the temple, maybe at Passover. These would have been temple animals without blemish or anything that was unclean. And in that sense, you know, we might see these shepherds coming to the manger that night as shepherds coming for the greatest of all the sheep the one who is without spot or blemish, the one who himself would be the sacrifice that would atone for the people's sins. Well, of course, all of this, I mean, we're in danger probably of over speculation, but but it is true that the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 13 verse 20 would call Jesus, first, the great shepherd of the sheep, and then he would add, by the blood of the eternal covenant. See, lying in the manger is both the great shepherd and the perfect lamb of God. So then, who else would come to visit but a group of shepherds?
0: If you want to enjoy a week in the Caribbean with Phil Calloway and the Laugh Again ministry team, time is almost out. If you're thinking of a week away to restore, refresh yourself personally and spiritually, this is a great vacation opportunity. Join Phil, award-winning musical artist Rika, and the Laugh Again team on the Royal Caribbean's Oasis of the Seas. What I can guarantee you is sunshine, beaches, great food, and beautiful vistas, but also fellowship, laughter, and a time of spiritual reflection and restoration. So make plans now to join Phil and the gang this February 3rd to the 10th, 2019. And all you need to do is check out laughagain.ca or call us directly at 1-800-663-2425 for all the information you need to register now. And on behalf of Phil, can't wait to see you there.
1: Let me reread Luke chapter 1 verse 11. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, Savior, who is Christ the Lord. We've already seen that the city of David is the city of Bethlehem. It's the the birthplace of King David. But this is also the place where God had promised would be the birthplace of his Messiah. But let's take the announcement of the angels one word or one phrase at a time. First, the shepherds are told that a Savior has been born. You know, in the Old Testament, a savior is always somebody who rescues from death, from trouble, from enemies, or from any peril. And that's what shepherds did for sheep. Since sheep are especially vulnerable to their enemies and they have no way to save themselves, they require shepherds to save them. That's the language that all shepherds would have understood. Of course, they're not told what Jesus will save them from many thought that he would just save them from Rome, and, and we wouldn't blame them. You know, people in that day, in that sense, were not very different from the people in our day. You know, many people in our day think that salvation consists in solving political problems. But even though modern politicians would never use the term savior to describe themselves, but in effect, if you, if you listen to them and their promises, that's exactly what they're claiming. Everything from saving us from our deficits to saving us from global warming to saving us from racism and all the other isms or saving us from the decline in our society. Well, politicians always present themselves as as saviors. And we, the people, well, we're looking for saviors. And the reason should be obvious. We all, without exception, know that we need saviors for without them, we're going to be lost. You see that? But as we know, Jesus saw a much greater danger, one that is most commonly dismissed today. It's, of course, the theme of the New Testament. The greatest danger for human beings is the cataclysm of sin. Sin is the breaking of God's law. Sin is a moral cancer that eats away at our soul. Sin makes us unresponsive to God. It breaks and divides our relationship with others. It allows us to engage in rebellion against our Creator. It creates a society where evil is allowed to flourish and and leaves us exposed to the danger of eternal judgment. We need a Savior from sin. Unto you is born a Savior. Shepherds really understand that. Shepherds know that without a Savior, all the sheep will die. Then after announcing to the shepherds that a Savior is born, they are told that this Savior is the Christ. Now, I say this so often that I sometimes imagine people rolling their eyes when I say it. But at the risk of being blatantly obvious, let me repeat it. Christ is not Jesus' last name. So, I remember years ago hearing a radio broadcast and a woman was mentioning people that had inspired her. She mentioned Mahatma Gandhi, and she mentioned Albert Schweitzer, and among others, she said Jesus Christ. And I was bemused. She said it as if Christ really was Jesus' last name. Look, Christ is not his name. It's his title. And furthermore, when the shepherds heard this announcement, they heard that the Savior would be the Mashiach or the Messiah. The word Christos is a Greek translation of the Hebrew word Mashiach. And then when we translate that into English, instead of translating Christos as Messiah, you know, we have translated it as Christ. And and that's confusing, I think, to many. But when the shepherds heard that the Savior was born in Bethlehem, they heard that he was the long-expected Messiah. That meant only one thing. King David's long-expected heir had been born. The one that would inherit the ancient throne had been born. He would restore all things, and from that place, he would save Israel and he would rule the world. There's no doubt whatsoever that the shepherds understood this when they heard the word Messiah. And the third is a title that I'm fairly sure that the shepherds would not have understood. The angels announced that the Savior, who is Christ, is the Lord. Now, never before had the word Messiah and the word Lord been used together. See, Lord can refer to someone simply of an exalted position, but it also can refer to God. And here again, we have to wonder what the shepherds heard, because remember, Luke is only giving us the Greek translation of what they heard. See, the angels most likely used the term Adonai. And the thing about Adonai is that when the Hebrews read the covenant name of God, which is Yahweh, in order not to take that name in vain or to treat that sacred name lightly, they would replace it with the word Adonai. And the Greek translation would be kurios, and it would be translated as Lord. Here's what I'm saying. It takes the rest of the New Testament to explain this title, Lord. I mean, Peter would later say, this Jesus whom you crucified is Lord and Christ. And Paul would say that one day, every knee would bow and every tongue confess that Jesus the Messiah is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. So embedded in that word Lord or Adonai, what's the very name of God? And truly the angels were announcing that the Messiah, the Savior, is God himself who comes to save us. That's who the baby is. But for now, the shepherds are simply to go to Bethlehem and and find the child of royal birth lying in an animal feeding trough. And the contrast couldn't have been more stunning. The greatest birth, the greatest royalty and and majesty is lying in a hollowed part of the ground where animals eat. And all of that stunned them. But suddenly the sky is filled with angels in full praise as if all of heaven simply couldn't hold back the magnificence of that moment. Of course, the Son of God has always enjoyed the adoration of angels. From eternity past, angels gathered before his throne and, and worshiped him with great joy. He is the one who is adored by angels. But now, as as Christ the Lord had stepped into the human race, the very one who spoke words and effortlessly flung the stars into space with the mere mention of his word, now had stepped into human history. Well, the majesty of that moment caused the angels to cry out, glory to God, and, and why shouldn't they? God himself had just veiled his awesome and terrifying glory with human skin, with human flesh, and he had done so to save his people from their sins. God's saving love brings God's great glory, his, his mercy to ruin, sin-ravage humanity, and this highlights his greatness, and, and the shepherds just watched I mean, wide-eyed and stunned at this spectacle of the mighty soldiers of God's army worshiping God for his amazing act of love in breaking into the human race. When we come to verse 12, we find what seems to us, at least at the outset, to be somewhat unusual. The angels say this will be a sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And See, the most obvious question when we read that is this. I mean, how is a baby in a feeding trough a sign that God has stepped into the human race? I mean, sure, it's unexpected. And to find a newborn in that context, I mean, given that Bethlehem was so jammed full of people, you know, it's not unbelievable to find a couple in a barn that's just given birth to a child. The idea of a sign means that you can confirm what has just been said by going to see the child. But of course, when the shepherd showed up in the barn, well, think about it they met Mary and Joseph. And the shepherds, well, they would have told Mary and Joseph what they had just seen. And then, in turn, Mary and Joseph would have told their own story, story of a virgin conception, virgin birth. And to that end, in verse 19, Mary treasured up these things in her heart. See, I think that means that the sign is not just a sign to the shepherds, but the shepherd showing up is a sign to Mary. You see, a conviction begins to arise in Mary's soul. It's a conviction that's already there, but it's but it's growing. This child is indeed the Lord's Christ. This child is indeed the Savior of the world. This child is indeed the Lord. I think it's rather obvious that this was the conversation in the barn that night. So by the time the shepherds return to their pastures, they are transformed men. Luke says they're glorifying and praising God. I imagine on the way back, on numerous occasions, the sheer joy, the the enormity of what has occurred made them stop and burst out in praise afresh. That's the story of Christmas. I don't think that one can investigate the birth of Christ without, when we finally understand it, to be simply staggered by the sheer overwhelming greatness of this event and years later, the Apostle John would write, and here I'm reading John chapter 1, verse 14. He said, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And I don't know that there's any other way to describe Christmas. When we come to Christmas and we begin to, again, go over the same account, we should be filled with that same reverence, that same staggering sense that we have stumbled upon something wonderful. Indeed, if you know anything truly about the birth of Jesus, it must be this. We must respond in worship. We must respond by simply allowing our souls to be overwhelmed with the greatness of this event.
0: John, I don't think we want to belie the point, but this idea of the shepherds and the bad rap they've taken over the years and pastors, you know, I just think it, it, it points to the fact that, you know, we really need to understand the Word and research the Word to know what the truth is being said.
1: Yeah, you know, I said that I think Daryl Bach, an excellent New Testament scholar, teaches at Dallas, has done wonderful historical research on this matter. Um, But I want to say to everyone, you know, be a little gentle on your pastor. I mean, you know, uh, probably he's got a very busy week and he's put stuff together. And and sometimes, you know, I don't know all the things that I've said over the years that haven't been exactly accurate. So uh, be gentle, Uh, but I think there are some wonderful new things to be mined when we pay attention to the historical background out of which something came, and we can find out that uh, there's new truths to be learned all of the time.
0: Thanks so much, John. Remember to join us tomorrow for our last in this series, A Well-Researched Christmas, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible.
2: Did you know that your gift of support this month will help provide the daily Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Newfeld across Canada and throughout much of Asia on the radio? Your financial gifts provide access to Bible teaching around the world through Back to the Bible Canada's daily broadcast and all of our online resources like our mobile app and podcast. Your gifts also support the ministry of Laugh Again, which is a daily program that brings a message of hope and joy that's found in Christ. Plus, your support also helps our young adult ministry In Doubt, which exists to bring God's truth to the relevant issues of life and faith that young adults face every day through a weekly podcast. These are just a few of the ministries that you help provide when you give to Back to the Bible Canada a ministry whose primary goal is to teach the Bible. This December, would you help us reach our year-end goal of $427,000 so that we can start off strong in 2019? Join us in sharing the light of Christ to a world in darkness. To donate today, call 1-800-663-2425 or give online at backtothebible.ca.